The Time Space Compassion podcast includes a range of different perspectives which may not always represent the views of Suicide Prevention Scotland or the organisations that work with us. These podcasts provide what we believe is an engaging way to support dialogue and help promote positive change in preventing suicide. Hello and welcome to Time Space Compassion, the podcast brought to you by Suicide Prevention Scotland, the community of people and organisations working together to deliver the Scottish Government and COSLA's new suicide prevention strategy. I'm Lawrence Brodie and over this limited edition series we're exploring Time Space Compassion, three simple words that are a key part of the Creating Hope Together strategy. I'll be joined by academics, professionals from a range of settings and those with lived and living experience. Time Space Compassion is an approach which encourages people and organisations to embed these principles in how they support others at a time of crisis. You can learn more on the Scottish Government website. For this second episode, I'm joined by Kerry Smith from Glasgow Complex Needs Project, Robert Nesbitt from SAMH, Sharon Thomas from The Lighthouse Perth, Suicide Prevention Scotland's National Delivery Lead, Hayla Smith, Shmela Ahmed from Resilience Learning Partnership, and Dr. Adam Burley, a clinical psychologist. They're going to be talking about language, trust and behaviour. In our discussion, we opened up with some really interesting themes ranging from people speaking trust as a second language to how we respond to people who are facing crisis. Now, just before we start, today's episode will understandably cover themes that some of you may find distressing. You'll find a range of useful links in the show notes. And at the end of the episode, I'll give you some key telephone numbers that may be helpful if you are struggling or know someone else who is struggling with their mental health. To kick off our conversation, Dr Adam Burley introduced an interesting idea around people who speak trust as a second language, and in general the idea of relational language and how people talk to themselves. Suicide Prevention Scotland's National Delivery Lead, Hayla Smith, and Shumela Ahmed from Resilience Learning Partnership echoed Adam's thoughts and both deeply believe people need the language, the right language, as a tool to find the right help. I think it's always interesting when around things like what we call self-harm or, or suicide, that often that language around attention-seeking or poor choices or they're making choices or, or X, Y, and Z. I mean, I don't know about anyone else on the call, but I didn't choose my mind. I didn't choose where I was born into and I didn't choose the relationships that formed my mind. And in that regard, the degree of choices that I actually have available to me were pretty limited by the the experiences that I was sort of born into. And you can think, I guess, of something like self-harm. It's interesting, even the term self-harm as relational. It's a relationship between a part of the self that's decided another part of the self needs a good kicking or a good cutting or a good beating up. And it could be in language like you're so effing stupid or... It could actually be drinking or harm. And again, suicide could be one part of the person saying, I need to kill another part of the person. It needs to be got rid of in some way. And I guess we'd have to start trying to think about that as not a poor choice at all, but as a really important relationship that might be telling us something, not just about the person's current state, but about the sort of relational experiences that they've had in their history to the point where a killing of the self or a killing of a part of the self becomes not a poor choice. It becomes a completely understandable one 
in the current circumstances that the person feels like they're experiencing. I was really interested. I also wanted to pick up on this bit about language. I'm really, really interested in language. There's a, a lady I worked with for a long time. She won't mind me saying this, but again, this comes to around compassion, about thinking about compassion for the self, about where we learn that from, that this is not something that we're born with. It's something that we learn through the sorts of relationships we have externally in our life, again, which we have no choice over, that become internalized and then we can decide, that we're not decide, then we learn whether we are worth showing compassion to or not. And if no one shows compassion to us, how the hell are we meant to show compassion to ourselves? Compassion starts outside of us, not inside of us in some way. So working with someone for a long time who whose internal world, I think, was really populated by our history, where there was lots of mistrust, abuse, neglect, which from a relational point of view means any of that early vulnerability of her as a young child reaching out was met with abuse and neglect. So now she could do that to herself very robustly. She could abuse herself, harm herself, neglect herself in all sorts of ways. And here's me trying to show her compassion, to say, well, I value you and I care about you. I think you're worth something. I'm going to say it like that, but, you know, showing over time because I did. And after years of this, we were talking about trust because her, her Bible, like page one or chapter one was, I don't trust anybody. And for good reason, for absolutely good reason. So here we are seven, eight years later asking her, so where do you think we are with trust? And she was at college by then. She was learning about critical periods of language development and, and things like that. And she said, well, I do trust you a bit. I do trust you, actually. But I think I will always speak trust as a second language. And I think that it really, really stuck with me to sort of remind us of some of the limits of, of what we're dealing with, that some injuries, like physical injuries, have permanent, long-lasting consequences. And I think I could turn around to her today and say, you do know I've been joking. I don't care about you at all. And she'd go, I knew it. Because her first language is mistrust. And her first language is abuse and neglect. And no one is going to like me. And I'm worthless. And I don't like myself. And then she's had to learn this second language. And it's really hard. It's like having to learn it all the time. It's, she's relatively fluent in it now, but it's still not her mother tongue. Her mother tongue is, I think, something different. I think we have to appreciate, again, going back to time and the volume of time and compassion that it might take to try and help somebody learn some of these things as second languages. We, we acknowledge that in physical health. We would never say to someone who had a spinal injury as a consequence of a road traffic accident trauma, oh, we'll give you six weeks of physio, and then you should be walking by then. And if you're not walking by then, then that's probably because you're treatment resistant or you're not trying hard enough or whatever. But that's all you're getting. And we would probably acknowledge in spinal injury that there are limits, that there may, you know, there may be a long-term limit to what you can do. I was just thinking there, Adam, as you were as you were telling that that story and, and talking through that, you talked about, you know, seven or eight years. So, you know, we're talking about a long time period and enabling that to you know or, or allowing that to to be the right approach that that's what that particular patient needed and and to yeah. and to have the space sorry to to explore where that was to learn that second language and and you know from what you described and i know you were summarizing you know how you told her she that was she was important and all all of um that language 
do you know, that is the compassion bit, isn't it? So th just as you were telling that story, I was thinking, well, that's where time and that's where space and that's where compassion are kind of coming in. But, you know, how how often are are we restricted in some of those things? And, and you know, how do we shift that? How do we how do we help the so-called professionals to to be able to create those things? And I, I would want to argue for not trauma-informed, psychologically informed, just informed would be good, actually. You know, and, and I guess most people are brought up in a family and as a treatment sort of option, really, a family tends to do quite well. Like we know that most patients come out of a family doing all right. And even when they're discharged at the age of 18 or 19, they can still come back home again to get their washing done. So we have a really good model of what works. And then we come, but when we come to provide treatment services for people who really, really haven't had that sort of experience, what we end up providing looks nothing like a family. In fact, at times it ends up reenacting the sort of neglect and time limitation and disregard that led the person to seek care in the first place. That story you told was just absolutely beautiful um, and made me think of a lot, but just to kind of respond to what you said there about family, I'm not sure if it's quite family, because there is some differences, but actually it's community. It's a community of people, because actually some people don't, they don't have any biological family, but, and I know that, you know, I have friendships and, and relationships in my life that are just as, as significant or as important as family in my life. And I think that's a, a journey for people when you when you actually make a lot of, a lot of people have grown up in trauma and adversity. When they start to discover or, or recover, they, they can sometimes cut connections and ties to family as part of the, the moving on and away from the re-traumatization. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's just um, part of the journey. Your story, Adam, makes me really think about some of that messy stuff that we don't always want to talk about and that might not be popular in certain places that, you know, for somebody like me, a lot of people might assume that, you know, I did my therapy, I did it years ago, and that's how I've been able to go on and do what I do now. I'm in active trauma therapy and I have been for the past three and a half years. And the reason is, is because I've never been so stable in my whole life. And that's when I was able to go back and unpick all of the childhood complex trauma. I couldn't have done that 10, 15 years ago. But I also often say, and, and Claire Fivey and I, uh, Adam, have worked together. Um, and one of the first things I said in front of her, and she kind of pulled me aside and said, what you're saying is absolutely true, was that for me, education healed me way more than I currently yeah. think trauma therapy has and may ever will. Education has empowered me in a way that doesn't just make me feel good about myself um, and the world, but has ensured that I will never be poor again. I will never be homeless again. I will never need to rely on, you know, a man who's abusive to keep me financially secure or safe. And there are things that education gave me and in turn now my children are you know doing exceptionally well they watch their mum go and engage with education it's been a real positive experience in their lives and they understand how important it is even though they might not always like it and the social capital that that's gave me is what's allowed me to go on and build RLP and allow that to be a form of social capital for people where you know those relationships can happen and, and communities can spring up and relationships that are like family ties of, of sprung up and will continue to spring up and that has a real ripple effect through the peer 
unofficial peer mentoring that we do and it just cascades out and you know we've got peers that came in two or three years ago and we don't know any of their problems anymore because they're talking to each other about it and finding ways to cope and strategize and all of that um and our role is to be that we can anchor in the community that can provide a sense of belonging some time some space some compassion and a really trauma-informed setting um and one of our own priority and commitment areas is about realizing aspirations because trauma can take a hell of a lot away from you and one of the things it can often take is aspiration hope ambition yeah. and society further often further compounds that with how it treats you for responding to the trauma that you've experienced and we're all about restoring that Segwaying into lived experience, particularly that of vulnerable groups, Sharon Thomas from The Lighthouse Perth discusses dealing with time constraints placed on supporting young people in crisis. Kerry Smith from the Glasgow Complex Needs Project talks about the idea of a medicalised model of distress, and she explains why she hopes time-space compassion can be a tool that will help tackle what she considers to be a real issue. Sometimes when we get a young person brought to us in crisis, when we sit with them, it's the first time they've actually been given time for them, mm-hmm. that time for that individual person yes. to sit there and us just to listen. And they just think, wow, yeah. that, that this is it, it's so potent when you see it in action. What, why, is, why is there not enough time? constraints, red tape, report writing. As a third sector organisation, every time we apply for funding, the the follow-up reports that have got to be written, you don't work for a charity just for the money, so they need to be more trust put in us so that they know that if we're getting that money, we're using it for the right cause without having me take two weeks out of my diary to write reports at the end of the the term. So so there is ways to free up more time. but that needs to come from the top down. They need to respect, acknowledge what we're doing and give us that time. Yeah, I, to- I totally agree, Sharon. I think as well, unfortunately, our health and social care system is, is built on um, a very medicalised model as well um, of distress. So since I've came into my post, um, the relational focus has, has been what I've been trying to promote throughout the team. Um, for some people, they get it. They can get on board with it. For others, um, they're so used to going out and providing a prescription for some, for somebody and, and that's that's their care, that's their support. So I think things like this time-space compassion strategy is going to be excellent because now I've got the, here is, here is where this is coming from, I've got something to back up the psychological models that I've been using with the team that some people are absolutely on board with, but the people that aren't, I can now say, why don't, why don't we think about this together? Because actually this is coming from the Scottish government now. So we're finally starting to get evidence behind an approach that pockets of us have used and have found effective, but we needed we needed this. I suppose um, if I go back to something that Tegan said uh, this morning, um, you know, I'm in front of you today as a suicide survivor, but I am only one person and my experiences could never represent the broad experiences of everyone around me. The fear, hope and stories we have to tell and the ones that will never be told. Take time to listen, hold space for us, be compassionate as you move forward in your in your work. And I suppose there may be days and occasions when you are sitting in in these type of meetings where you wouldn't mind having taken there sitting in front of some of these people and saying, listen to what she's saying. 
So this is exactly what I do when I'm speaking to people, whether it's in a meeting or presentation, whatever. I do. I don't have any script or anything. I just tell them what we're dealing with every day coming through that door. What our young people's mental health, the, the, the scale that it's at, and I will give them protecting confidentiality. But I will speak about real people, real examples of that kid who turned up at school distressed because she arrived at school. And when asked, what do you mean? She says, well, I was trying to get hit with a car all the way to school because then it would have been easier for my parents to think it was an accident. And they're no easy things to hear, you know, but that is what we need to be making sure. And when that gets through to them, so when you are giving them real life, yeah, this this is not made up, this is what we deal with, this is what happened last week, this is what we did with this kid last week, and it, it, it breaks through, it breaks through. If you're not familiar with creating hope together, you can download a copy of the new suicide prevention strategy from 2022 to 2032 on the Scottish Government website. It also includes the new suicide prevention action plan and the delivery framework. Touching on behaviour, Robert Nesbitt from SAMH says designing better services for individual needs is simply about listening to people. Robert also brought the unique design of the Changing Room project to the table. It's a men's and women's mental health and well-being programme that he runs, delivered in partnership with the SBFL Trust and powered by football clubs. You know, my experience tells me that when I've been working with people either one-to-one or we're in group settings or my team's working with people, that why is it do some people behave in one way and other people behave in, in a different way? And... The thing always comes back for me is we need to understand where that person's coming from. We need to understand their experience and what it means to them. But it's also really important to recognise that, you know, one of the things that I've always learned is that people do have the answers. They sometimes just need particular supports in particular ways. So the way that we build trust with someone and take the time to understand where they come from you know, I was, I was listening to um, the conversation in, in one of the groups earlier, and that's what a young person was saying. Just understanding where I come from. So walking through a door and asking me my opinion and what that means is actually the first start of the journey. What does someone need? That's so important. Because often people can come and say, oh, we offer this. And they, they come from this position. Oh, you can have, you can have, you can have. Rather than thinking about what do you need And is there anything that we need to consider from your perspective that will help us engage and connect with you? Because when we start to do that, that's where spaces like time, space, compassion really can make a big difference because they are about an approach. They help us to frame the way, they help us to enhance the activities that we are doing. So if we come from that, that's the first thing that we need to ask is get to know someone and get to know where their frame of reference is because that's what will break the barrier. And I'm sure, listening to Sharon there, I'm sure, Sharon, there'll be often people say to you, you know, this is the first time I felt listened to. All the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because you create that space, the depth and, and understanding within that space, both for you as a practitioner or delivering a service, for that person, it validates the experience that they've had, it validates that their voice and what they're saying matters, which then is that journey to hope as well and that belief that we have because often people that we work with are people that actually 
have low self-esteem, low confidence, low self-belief. So we really need to get into that space and turn around and turn that about. Takes time, but my God, is it worthwhile when you're in that space? Where does co-design and co-production fit in terms of finding solutions that work? Completely. So within the work that we do, everything that we do is designed by someone, for someone. We made that a point of what we were going to do. Every bit of new work that we are going to do, we are going to involve the people that we are trying to target to help us not only to, get back to what you were saying, not only about... Um, what that might look like, but understanding where we're starting point is. Because yeah. often you can come with assumptions and you need to go and test those assumptions. Don't assume they're right. Go ask the people. So we often talk about um, it was designed by men in their middle years, for men in their middle years. It was designed by young women, for young women, because it's a richness to the voice. And I'll tell you something else, it creates success and it yep. creates real impact. There are some incredibly powerful films on the NHS Inform website. Surviving Suicidal Thoughts is a campaign that features a number of people with lived experience of suicide. They've been there and they've come out the other side and they're sharing their story now. You can find these films on nhsinform.scot forward slash surviving hyphen suicidal hyphen thoughts. Honing in on compassion... Kerry Smith from the Glasgow Complex Needs Project and Shannon Thomas from the Lighthouse Perth explained how their organisations are adopting new approaches to help understand people's behaviour better. I think um, where our service is trying to focus at the moment is on the the word compassion as well. Um, We're spending a lot of time trying to embed a psychologically informed approach to understanding the barriers that are patients experience many of these barriers can be perceived by people as difficult behaviors but actually if we look deeper than that we can recognize actually many of the ways people present to services are ways that they've survived their experiences ways that have worked for them to help them to get to where they are today but unfortunately that means that it can create difficulties in the way other people relate to them and other people understand them so we spend a lot of time in our service making sure that we have a really full understanding I really feel compassionate understanding of that person. We can take that right back to their earliest experiences. And what what we often find is within those early experiences, relationships were harmful. Um, So we need to have an open, compassionate response to people's expectations being on us that we may cause harm within the relationships we offer them. And they may then try to survive that expectation in certain ways. So we are really open to understanding how people may react to our offers of care. And if if we don't do that, we may then perceive the way people relate to us in challenging ways and it will stop us from providing and offering the care that people deserve. Every time I'm at a young person's planning meeting where we have different agencies around to see how we can help this young person, I always challenge when somebody says, yeah, but that's just behavioural. Yep. Because I say, well, What's look, under there? you must look behind every behaviour because if you look behind the behaviour... So again, you need to take the time, yeah. you need to have the right space with that young person, show the compassion, and quite often it'll break that down and, and there is a reason for the behaviour. People are just like acting out for no reason. And that takes time from services as well, and our services, it's a small service, we don't have lots of resource, but we need to give that time to each person that comes in, because they've never had it before, just like you were saying Sharon, they've never had people interested enough to find out what's behind their behaviour. 
My sincere thanks to Kerry Smith from Glasgow Complex Needs Project, Robert Nisbet from SAMH, The Lighthouse Perth, Sharon Thomas, Shumela Ahmed from Resilience Learning Partnership, clinical psychologist Dr Adam Burley, and Suicide Prevention Scotland's National Delivery Lead, Hayla Smith, for joining me on this busy episode. And thank you to you for listening to Time, Space, Compassion from Suicide Prevention Scotland. If you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health or are feeling suicidal, please do not hesitate to ask for help. You can contact your GP or call NHS 24 on 111. The Samaritans are available on 116 123 or you can call Breathing Space for free on 0800 83 85 87.